This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we're taking a look at the influence scientists had on the character Sherlock Holmes and the influence that he had on science. Plus, we're finding out about a tiny structure that's challenging how biologists think of cells. This is The Nature Podcast for September 21st, 2017. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. A little over 10 years ago, cell biologist Chiara Zerzolo was trying to unpick how prions move between cells. And it was around this time she came across two studies that suggested something many scientists were finding hard to believe. That filaments, several cells long but incredibly thin, could connect cells together. Chiara and her team decided to look for these structures for themselves. When I looked finally at the images, we were all, wow. What was really uh, astonishing was not only to see the protrusion between the cells, but to see the vesicle moving inside the protrusion. This is a kind of flow material that means that the cells are able to communicate directly. It seemed like these filaments, or nanotubes as they're often called, might serve as a kind of transmission line between cells. In this case, allowing small packets, vesicles, to be transported across. One of the papers that Chiara had come across was by Daniel Davis, and Daniel himself had quickly realised nanotubes were not only unusual structures. They could actually upend the idea of cells as discrete building blocks within organisms. And in fact, if cells are connected through really open-ended tunnels, then it also pushes the boundaries of, of defining even what a cell is. Such massive implications have made nanotubes a source of serious controversy. At first, some doubted they even existed. But in the decade or so since Daniel and Chiara's initial descriptions, more and more findings have been reported. I think we could see them between all different kinds of cells, in all different situations, and we really 
uh, are only just beginning to scratch the surface of the vast uh, variability in what these types of membrane strands are. Researchers are also unpicking all sorts of functions that nanotubes could be involved with. The connections they form could allow diseases to be spread from cell to cell. Uh, they are a huge implication because proteins involved in neurodegenerative diseases can move between neurons in tunneling nanotubes and therefore propagating the disease. We showed that HIV can move from one cell to the other, from one T cell to another. Perhaps also if, if pathogens are really using nanotubes in the body, then that opens up the possibility for membrane nanotubes to be targets for medicines. And, and I'm aware that pharmaceutical companies are looking at that. The implications don't end with neurodegenerative diseases and the spread of pathogens like HIV. Nanotubes may also be implicated in cancer. Daniel's work has documented immune cells using nanotubes to attack cancer cells, and others have spotted these structures linking tumour cells. But for all the new connections that are being drawn between nanotubes and biological processes, deep questions still loom. Richard Cheney works on other filaments that cells sometimes protrude. He's fascinated by nanotubes, in spite of still being somewhat unsure exactly what they are. Are they exchanging cell surface signals? Do they get the tips get bit off by a receiving cell? Do they actually fuse? Um, so to me, those are the really kind of interesting questions. But these aren't Richard's only questions. Even more fundamentally, he's also unsure that everything researchers have identified so far can really be thought of as some kind of tunnel linking cells together. What fraction of them are really open-ended nanotubes, I think is really open to question right now, at least in, like, in a real organism. Like, what are they doing there? This is where much of the uncertainty arises. As with many cellular phenomena, it's much easier to study nanotubes in cell cultures than it is in an organism. And for something as novel as nanotubes, Daniel explains that it's still unclear how representative these studies are of real-life function. For me, the contentious issue is how important are they? And the gap is trying to understand how these cell biological phenomena uh, play out in, in the human body. And even if the myriad of nanotube phenomena do take place in the human body, researchers are still a long way off from understanding just how big a role they play. You know, if you, if you see a few cells in tissue culture that are connected with these things and they are clearly demonstrated to be open, um, you know, is that something that happens to one in a hundred or one in a thousand cells? Or is that something that is a major mechanism Chiara agrees that there's still plenty of work to be done to join up our understanding of these strange, tiny filaments. But for her, tying up these loose ends is making working on nanotubes all the more exciting. I've been working on this since 10 years and I still have a lot of fun. And now it's even more fun because uh, people start to believe it. <laughs> so... That was Chiara Zerzolo, who's at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. You also heard from Richard Cheney at the University of North Carolina and Daniel Davis, who's at the University of Manchester here in the UK. 
Find out more about nanotubes in a feature out in this week's Nature. Plus, you can see them for yourselves in a video. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Coming up later in the show, using gene editing to understand the beginnings of human embryos. And a space mission goes up in flames. That's in the news chat. But now Charlotte Stoddart joins us for this week's research highlights. Using tools has made humans very efficient hunters, perhaps too efficient when it comes to things like overfishing. Well, it turns out we're not the only species with that problem. A new study suggests that tool use in monkeys could have a significant impact on their prey. Macaques on certain islands in Thailand use stones to bash open shellfish. Scientists studied two islands and found that, on the one with more stone-using macaques, the shellfish are smaller and less abundant. The smaller shellfish have, in turn, led to the monkeys using smaller stone tools, which could result in a feedback loop that turns out quite badly for the poor shellfish. Prize more of this story from eLife. Biting into a sweet red strawberry is a great summer treat, But it's less great for the strawberry plant, since, if its seeds are eaten, it can't reproduce sexually. As many gardeners know, however, strawberry plants are also happy to reproduce asexually, sending out horizontal stems called runners or stolons, which then produce clones. Researchers in France decided the time was ripe to find out how these plants balance sexual and asexual reproduction. They studied mutant strawberries that don't make stolons and identified a key chemical. Inhibiting this chemical in normal strawberry plants also stopped these plants producing stolons. If it comes to fruition, this seed of an idea could help plant breeders balance the number of clones versus fruit. Find out more about this very fruitful piece of research in the journal Plant Cell. Nature podcast, we tend to focus on researchers who have a big impact on science. But it's not every week we honour the legacy of a fictional character. But today we are, and reporter Jeff Marsh has the story. Sherlock Holmes is perhaps the world's most famous fictional detective and the brainchild of the late British author Conan Doyle. The character married science and logical reasoning to crack the most perplexing crimes of Victorian England and has captivated audiences for well over a century in books, television, radio and film. And this character's acclaim has even reached scientific institutions. In 2002, the Royal Society of Chemistry bestowed an extraordinary honorary fellowship on Holmes for his use of chemical science as a means of detection. Holmes's character was actually inspired by real scientists, just as he himself inspired science, according to journalist Maria Kornikova, who's written a book about the famous detective. 130 years on since Holmes's literary debut, she told me how still today we could all benefit from thinking a bit more like Sherlock. For anyone that like hasn't, for any miraculous reason, hasn't come across Sherlock Holmes ever in any media format, how would you describe him? What kind of a character was he? Well, so he would describe himself as the world's first and only consulting detective. He does not work for any police force, but he does consult with anyone who will ask him for consultations. And he's also someone who is definitely a polymath very well versed in science, mathematics, forensics. So basically Conan Doyle made this 
character into someone who knows something about mostly everything. And he's a and he's a lover of facts and logic. He takes a very keen interest in making sure that his observations are spot on from an objective standpoint. So he really faults Dr. Watson, who's kind of his companion throughout all of the stories, for being too emotional. He always says over and over, you can't let your emotions, your feelings get in the way of pure logic. He sounds a lot like your ideal scientist, really. And I don't think that it's at all a coincidence. His creator, Conan Doyle, was trained as a physician at the University of Edinburgh and actually based Sherlock Holmes on a brilliant diagnostician, one of his mentors at Edinburgh, Joseph Bell, a man who really was renowned for his powers of observation. So Conan Doyle came across Bell when he was at Edinburgh and he he met all sorts of other pioneers at that Victorian era in Edinburgh, didn't he, that may also have sort of fed into the, the character that we know and love. It's actually kind of crazy how many people were in Edinburgh at the time. You have Joseph Lister, who kind of invented a lot of the antiseptic practices and who popularized a lot of the work of Louis Pasteur on pasteurization and germ theory and all of that. Robert Christensen, who was a toxicologist and probably someone who inspired Conan Doyle's fascination with poisons and also the possibilities of science in criminal matters, in forensics. What I think Conan Doyle was so good at doing is he actually brought a lot of these ideas to a public who would not otherwise have even thought of them. So there's kind of a feedback mechanism where you have him taking things from science, popularizing them, and then the community at large saying, oh, you know, well, it works for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he's fictional, but hey, maybe we should try it over here. As a character, he was clearly kind of ahead of his time. Are there any examples where, quite literally, you know, the science that Sherlock employs in his, you know, in his investigations was ahead of time? Did he predict anything that then went on in the future? You know, in in some respects, he did. He has this test where he says, we're going to just add this reagent to this mixture and we'll be able to see if it's blood because it will only react with hemoglobin. A little while later, there was a test, the precipitin test, that did react only with hemoglobin. Conan Doyle had such a vivid imagination, but his imagination was coming out of a true interest in science and in what was going on. One of my favorite examples that shows that he just kind of remained fascinated throughout his career as a writer is something that people actually frown upon, which is that Holmes used cocaine. It's really interesting to track his cocaine use in the stories against what was known about cocaine at the time. So Sigmund Freud actually popularized cocaine, and Conan Doyle was very familiar with Freud's work. Then Freud started actually observing what cocaine did in the long term, and he saw his best friend die of cocaine addiction, and he basically retracted everything. And lo and behold, Sherlock Holmes stops using cocaine. That's another parallel between the fictional and the factual because the, you know, in the scientific literature, it sort of self-corrects. People find that something's wrong and then they'll, you know, publish a correction and the field changes. And that's sort of also happening with this fictional character, Sherlock, you know, his new evidence comes to light and it self-corrects. I think he was really trying to be on some level responsible. Another great example. Um, so Conan Doyle himself went totally loopy off the deep end near the end of his life, believed in fairies. I mean, just totally crazy stuff for a man who spent his life in science. And yet Holmes, his creation, said that it was junk. So his character is still standing up for 
kind of the more scientific and the more reasoned response, even though Conan Doyle himself fell down the spiritualist rabbit hole after losing a lot of family in the war, going through kind of a lot of painful stuff and turning to spiritualism himself. Well, I feel like even today we could still do with a few more reasoned responses. Do you think that Sherlock Holmes still has a role to play uh, in modern society? Um, I think that Sherlock Holmes continues to be a character that's quite relevant, um, probably more relevant than he's been for some time. We are living through an age where you have kind of science denialism. And I think for a lot of people, it's very emotional. Um, They are making kind of decisions based on emotion rather than reason. Sherlock Holmes warns against that. And he is kind of this bastion of let's strip emotionality out of the decision making equation. This is something that actually applies to everyone, no matter your level of education. And if we took a page from that playbook, I think that the world would be much better off. That was journalist Maria Konnikova. For more of Maria's thoughts on Holmes, check out her book, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Time now, as always, for this week's news chat. And joining us in the studio is Heidi Ledford. Hi, Heidi. Hello. There's been lots of fanfare lately about gene editing human embryos. And this week, there's yet another study on this topic, although it's in quite a different way to the the studies we've been talking about lately. Yeah, I love how you said yet another study about <laughs> Sorry, this. Another is, study on this. It is it is quite different from uh, certainly from the study that we talked about the um, probably the last time I was on the news chat. That study that came out earlier this summer was an attempt to try to correct a, a disease-related gene in human embryos. So it was, it was um, quite a landmark, I think, in, in that sense. Uh, but what they did was quite different from what, their, what a different group is reporting this week. So this week, it's really, it's much more about a basic science study. Uh, it's a team um, led by a group in, at the Crick Institute here in London um, has used CRISPR-Cas9 to knock out a gene that was thought to be involved in embryo development. And they found that, yes, indeed, it is involved in embryo development. Uh, it's not directly related to any de- diseases. The end goal is not to try to find a way to treat a genetic disease or to prevent a genetic disease. Uh, it's really just uh, an effort to try to understand more about embryo development. How important is this kind of work then? How much don't we understand about embryo development? Yeah, there's quite a bit. I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously it's a very difficult thing to study. Embryos are hard to come by and there there are ethical reasons why you don't want to just start working with embryos willy-nilly. You have to think very carefully about each experiment. Um, So in the past, traditionally, these studies have been done mainly in mice. Uh, and that's been useful. It's been very useful. But, uh, you know, researchers have pointed out that there do seem to be some key differences between, you know, mouse embryo development and human embryo development, some very obvious ones, even just in the the more the way the embryos look, um, the time at which they're implanted into the uterus, all these sorts of things. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the advent of CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which is a way to uh, somewhat somewhat easily, I guess, alter gene expression and and what have you, sort of offered researchers a chance to look at uh, the importance of certain genes in embryo development in human embryos using a technique that's quite efficient so they don't have to plow through so many of them to get to the answer they're looking for. 
Does this then pave the way for, for more of these kinds of studies looking at human embryos? I mean, you know, to some extent, I think so. I mean, it's it's always going to vary a bit depending on what country you're in and what the regulations are uh, with when it comes to working with human embryos. I mean, these, you know, I would imagine that you'll see more and more of them over the next few years. But at the same time, you know, there are going to be some limitations to, to what can be done and where. Um, people, by and large do try to reserve these sorts of experiments for, you know, very targeted experiments that, you know, to address differences that you can't quite get at, you know, using the animal models. Could this study help in any way inform what embryos would implant, say, during IVF? I'm not sure. It's not quite ready to to really be used to, to sort of diagnose embryos and, and select them. But it is a hope that as we learn more about uh, human embryo development, that it may help us understand why, you know, for example, so few embryos that we implant actually do uh, go on to develop, you know, into a fetus and then into a baby. Uh, so they do want to learn more about that in hopes of someday improving, you know, IVF and, and what have you. But it's it's one of those long-term goals. They also want to use it to learn more about stem cells um, because there are ways of generating uh, what we call induced pluripotent stem cells, which are kind of like embryonic stem cells, but not quite as able to take on as many different identities. So as they study embryo development, they're hoping to also learn a little bit more about how to make um, stem cells, say, in a Petri dish that uh, can take on more identities and be more versatile. Now, elsewhere, uh, another piece of research is just coming to what seems to me quite a tragic end. A spacecraft has just crashed, but this wasn't actually... An accident. Oh, and it's the best kind of crash you could hope for. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's the end of, uh, I mean, it is a bit moving, though, because it's the end of a, of a long saga. It's the Cassini spacecraft, uh, which has been collecting data about Saturn uh, for the past 13 years, launched back in 97, so 20 years ago. Um, and it has crashed, but it's an intentional crash. It's the best kind of crash because it was collecting data, apparently, as you know, as far down as it could go and giving um, researchers a new look at Saturn's atmosphere as, as it went down. Um, but yes, it is, it is kind of the end of an era. It seems like a strange question to ask, but did the crash go to plan? As far as I know, I think it did. It was collecting data as it went down um, and crashed, you know, right when everyone was expecting it to. I really love this, the story that our reporter, Alexandra Witsey, who's been covering Cassini since it launched in 97, the story that she wrote started with, uh, you know, mentioning that hundreds of scientists watched their life's work crack, go up in flames at that moment. But, uh, but yeah, that's what they had been hoping to do. And it was, I guess, the best way for a, for a spacecraft to go out. What were the key measurements that Cassini was actually taking? Over the years, it's it's uh, taught us a lot about, uh, particularly about Saturn's moons. Um, it found, you know, geysers on Enceladus. Uh, it found that uh, the moon Titan has chemistry on it that's sort of similar to what you might have found on Earth back before there was life on Earth. And so all of that was quite tantalizing. Um, it's taught us a lot about the rings, and I think we'll continue to teach us about the rings because scientists are still picking apart um, some of the data on that. Uh, it's even everything all the way down to just the what is the length of the of the day on Saturn is something that they're trying to still, as far as I know, still try to pick apart. Is that it now for studying Saturn for the foreseeable future, or are there any more efforts underway? From um, I believe there are proposals to send more spacecraft there, but nothing planned yet. So for the researchers who've been working on Cassini for well, a couple of decades, mm -hmm. are they now just 
back out on the job market. From what I understand, they have a year of funding left, to, and that'll help them sort of pick through all of this data that they've got. Um, but then after that, I've I've been told that, yeah, some of them are starting to plan their next moves, and it, and it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to move on from a project that you've, you've nurtured for that long. And, uh, you know, in a competitive funding environment, it's pretty challenging, I think, to figure out what your next move is going to be. Yeah, it must be a very bittersweet moment for everyone involved, I, I guess. I so, yeah. Thank you, Heidi. To find out more about Cassini's last hurrah and about this new research on embryo development, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all we have time for this week, and we're afraid there won't be a show next week. But I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that this is episode 499 of the Nature Podcast. So make sure you listen out for the next episode, which we'll be ensuring is extra special to honour our half millennium. Until next time, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>